sidestep out of uh, Genesis uh, to address some of the issues, some of the implications of what we read in Genesis 3 last week. And, of course, I took the Bible away and forgot to put my other Bible there, so I'm having a bad brain day. So I'll just warn you right now. And perhaps it's because I've been wrestling with this text. In some ways it's very, it's a very easy text, but in other ways it's a very difficult text. Um, but it is a key text to understanding both sin and salvation. This is a very important text for us. So Galatia, sorry, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Hear the word of our God. Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that... As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God bless the reading of His Word this morning. It's one of those unspoken realities that we all experience, and I don't know if anyone can really deny the fact that everyone disobeys, right? Seems pretty self-evidentiary, and yet some people struggle with this. And yet we must ask the question, why is it that everyone disobeys? Why is it that everyone goes astray? Why is it that everyone transgresses and trespasses? Why is it that hatred, crime, and pain are such a part of this world? And and part of everyone's experience. Why do we wake up one morning and read about riots across the world? in which people are killed merely because they're from a different tribe, a different stam. And they're beaten, and the elderly are shot. What's up with that? Where does that come from? 
We're used to waking up. And this week, one of our young men found his car was broken into again. How does this happen? Why is this so prevalent? It's not just that. It's not just those big things that somehow strike us, but it's also the little things, the disagreements in marriage or the disobedience of children, the frustration of parents. Why is it that this is the experience of not just some people, but everybody? That is what Paul is basically answering right here in Romans chapter 5. Your answer or the answer of anyone will point them in the direction of a solution, which is exactly where Paul goes with this. He doesn't just give the answer, he gives the solution. People's answers will point them in a direction of a particular solution. We've talked about that before, and it just becomes evident again. And so as we talk with people about their answer to this question, we can begin to engage them in why their answer And their solution may not be adequate for the problem that we see. The big idea this morning is that the grace of the Lord Jesus is greater than our sin. The context here in Romans 5 is that Paul has been explaining why both Jews and Gentiles are guilty before God. And he's also explaining why justification is by faith and not by works. So that is kind of where we pick up Paul in the argument. And he goes back to the beginning to Adam to explain all of this, why all are guilty. And the first part of this is that Adam, as a covenant head, is a type of Christ. And we're going to sort of work with that a little bit. But first we see this declaration by Paul that sin entered by one man and that with it, death comes on the heels of sin. And as a result, all die. And now if you just took that sentence and isolated it from everything that's happened in Romans thus far and everything that's about to happen in Romans thus far, uh, you could get some very different answers than the one Paul gives. In fact, that is basically what has happened in the history of the church. There is a guy by the name of Pelagius, and his answer to why it is that everybody sins is as simple as this. They're imitating the sin of Adam. They've learned from him. That's a rather simplistic answer that Pelagius gives. Now, this does not deny that there is a, there is something in scripture that we call generational sin. That if sin is not repented of by one particular generation, it tends to be passed on to the, the next generation because they don't see the sinfulness of it. And we could see that in places like Kosovo where the the hatred between the Serbs and the Bosnians lasted for generations. Just generational sin. Boom, boom, boom. Right down the, the line. The hatred for one race, one group, one ethnicity passed on to the next one. You see that all over the world. It's not something that's particular to the to the Bosnians and the people from Kosovo. The Serbians, rather. But it takes place all the time. So there is a reality of generational sin, but that is not a sufficient answer for why all have sinned. Because Pelagius, like many Americans, believe that people are basically good. So you'd figure that at some point, based on the sheer number of people, there would have been somebody who would have been okay. And yet we find all around us people disobey. 
There's another answer that some people have put forward. And that is the idea that somehow uh, the sin is passed down biologically. By that, sort of like the idea that now Adam's genes have been corrupted, as if there is now a sin gene. Okay, And so we inherit this sinfulness by nature of genetics and birth. And there is no denying that there are some things for which there is a predisposition based on genetics. We see this in terms of alcoholism. That if you look at the rates of alcoholism, there is a higher percentage of alcoholics for people whose father was an alcoholic. So there may be some sort of genetic tie that is a not a... It's going to make you an alcoholic, but there's a predisposition towards weakness for that particular sin. Okay, so we we don't want to, we we, we see that that can take place, but that seems to be an insufficient answer. For if that is the answer, then the, the, the solution would be to find the gene, wouldn't it? Now we've got all this medical technology. Uh, people like Joseph are working on hybrids and things like that with plants. And so all it would take is some dude like Joseph to go and to find the sin gene and find a way to recombine the DNA so that we get rid of the sin gene. So no longer are people alcoholics. No longer are they filled with anger and hatred. We kind of just give them a medication for it, right? That's... The, That would be the result of that particular answer to this question. But apart from that, we would be set with this idea of fatalism. Man, I got the gene. Might as well just do the sin. You know, I'm I'm programmed to do this. Therefore, I must. And so fatalism would fall into play. But the point when we start to zoom out from that one verse and see what's around it, is we get to see that the point is not that people repeated Adam's sin. Because one of the things that we find here is that in that time between Adam and Moses, there was what? No law. And what Paul says there is that where there is no law, and he said it also in chapter 3, where there is no law, sin is not counted or reckoned. And yet, what happened between Adam and Moses? People died. In fact, we're going to see in, I don't know, a couple months, not only did people die, but that God judged the earth in Noah, the days of Noah. And so, sin was still present, even though, just as Paul says, even though there was no law. And so it's not, this is not an answer. These two answers do not satisfy but Paul kind of lays out this little thing here, says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. What is a type? It is something that prefigures or foreshadows something else. And what happens usually is that there is a type in the anti-type. And this sounds almost like Hegelian philosophy, but it's not. Uh, because Adam functions in a way that Jesus will function in the future is what Paul is saying here. How Adam does it is going to be very different from how Jesus does it, but there is an underlying principle that is going to be at work. And the underlying principle that is at work here is that Adam acted not just on his own behalf, but he acted as a covenant head. 
He represented the rest of humanity in his actions. He didn't sin just on his own, but he sinned for all of us. We, we, you know, initially some people have a hard time with that, and yet we see it all the time, don't we? Why is, is my wife and two kids here? Because I accepted a position here. <laughs> they came with me. I acted. And so they came as a result of my decision, my choice. Right? They received the consequences, good or evil, of my decisions. And so they're here. We see this all the time in our government. Okay? Who's our president? President Obama. What happens to the decisions he makes? For good or for bad, we endure the consequences. If he declares that we're at war with another country, guess what? Is it, does it mean that President Obama is at war with that country? No. It means every American is at war with that country because he is functioning basically as a representative, as a covenant head, so to speak, similar to a covenant head. And so when Adam sins... He sins not just for himself, but for us. Now, you might think for a moment, why do we get there? What's interesting here? Whose sin does Paul lay this at? Whose sin brought us into sin and misery? Hmm? Adam. Let me ask another question. Who sinned first? Eve. What is different between Eve's sin and Adam's sin? The reality that he was functioning as a covenant head, not just of that family, but of all humanity. That's the difference. As Paul says, not only was she deceived, but she became a sinner first. So there was a sinner before, the, before Adam sinned. But it's his sin that brought sin into the world. That made all of us sinners. Not hers. His. So Jesus, this idea of type, Jesus is also the head of a covenant. And so when Jesus acts, he does not act just for himself, but for all those who he, whom he represents within that covenant. Adam worked representing people in the covenant of works. Jesus works representing people in the covenant of grace. He works. Adam worked for everyone who was born ordinarily. Okay. The reason the confession says that is because Jesus was born essentially abnormally. He didn't have an earthly father. He, the Holy Spirit came and overcame Mary, and so he did not have an earthly father, and so he's a little different. That's why he was not subject to the curse himself. Why he was not a sinner himself. Jesus acts for all those who are united to him by faith and will be united to him by faith. 
And so covenant headship is the key to understanding both our sin and our salvation. Let's look at this a little more. In verses 15 through 17, we see that Adam introduced sin and death, but Jesus, grace and life. We have this contrast that Paul develops that's working through, and one of the contrasts here is trespass versus gift. Both of them are acts. Okay, There was one trespass, there is one gift. Adam left the path. That is the idea of a trespass. We all know. We've seen signs, right? No trespassing. It's, just, it's hilarious because there's, there's this one house by Amy's parents' house, and we would walk up and down the street. And one day we stopped to count the number of trespass, no trespassing signs on this building. It's just a little building, a little shack, you know? And there had to be like 25 no trespassing signs on this. I mean, I don't know how you could ever miss them. You know, and yet I felt this desire to trespass. (laughs) But we understand what trespassing is. It's crossing a boundary that we're not permitted to cross. And that is exactly what Adam did. There was a boundary that had been established by God, and yet he chose to cross that boundary to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? But Jesus, instead of the trespass, provides the gift. The Greek word there is, is charisma. We tend to think of someone who's charismatic, you know, who, who's got a personality that engages people and draws people in. But the, the Greek has this idea of a gracious or freely given gift, which is what the ESV picks up on. The, uh, the NIV just says gift, freely given gift. And so Jesus, instead of trespassing and breaking the law, Jesus provides a gift. Okay? What happened is, through his one trespass, Adam brings sin to everyone. There's the act And here's the consequence. Trespass, sinners, all. But with Jesus, His one act, His gift, brings grace to many sinners. And so we have this idea of the effect. One sin not only brings sin, I'm sorry, the the one trespass not only brings sin, but that one sin brings death to all. Whereas the one gift of Jesus brings life to all who believe. That's how it functions. So as a result, this, this rules out what Pelagius taught, which is why Augustine went after him so hard. It rules out the idea that we sinned by imitation and therefore our salvation is essentially by imitation. Are we to imitate Christ? Yes, Is that how we're saved? No. We imitate because we have been saved. It's very different. Very different how that functions in your heart. Because with the way Pelagius viewed it, there was no gift required. But Paul is belaboring this point. There is a gift that's required. There is no salvation apart from this gift of Jesus. So it undermines the the system of doctrine that Pelagius taught. Adam's sin 
brought us guilt and death long before you also sinned. You are guilty and under the death penalty. As my representative, it's just as if I had sinned way back in the garden. Okay? Just as if I had sinned. And so as a result, what Paul says is that death reigns over all who are in Adam. We're all under the power of death if we are in Adam. So as a result, this shows us why Jesus' death is necessary for procuring saving grace. Okay? Not only is it that imitating Jesus was not enough, but this is a song by Switchfoot on their latest CD, and it's talking about mess of me and how he's made a mess of his life as a sinner. And it says, there ain't no drugs that can make me whole again. There's, there's no other solution. Grace is the only solution to the problem that we're experiencing, that we're all a part of. And so we find elsewhere that Paul calls Jesus the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. There's an exclusivity there. There's only two Adams. The first one and the last one. One brought death and the other brings life. And if you're not connected by faith to the second one, you have no life. If we were, and so, you know, a lot of people struggle with this idea that we fell in Adam. I know there's a sense in which some people say that's not fair. You know, why am I to blame for someone else's actions? And yet we experience this all the time. And yet if we think that somehow in this instance this is unfair, well, you know, if that side of the equation is unfair, what about this side of the equation? It would also be unfair. And therefore, you are left to earn your own salvation. Any of you tried that recently? How'd it go? And so Paul embraces both. Scripture embraces both. We, as God's people, must embrace both. So all born in Adam, which is everyone in this room, everyone in Tucson, everyone in Arizona, everyone in the North America, everyone in the Western Hemisphere, everyone in the whole world who has ever lived and ever will live apart from Jesus, receive sin and death. But all who trust in Jesus receive grace and life. Last part of this, verses 18 through 21. The grace of Jesus far exceeds the sin of Adam and his children. That's the good part of this. See, the, the one sin brought us all under condemnation. Paul continues this argument, and he, he just seems to be going back and forth with this whole idea. But not only that, but he says that we sinned too. As a result of being sinners, we also started to heap up things. And so we're guilty not just from Adam's sin, but now we're also guilty of our own sin. 
the spring has been polluted and now it's deadly. And so the, the, the spring of our actions, our heart, which is like the root of a tree, is bad and which produces much bad fruit. So it is from this original sin that we produce our own particular sins, that our own unrighteous anger, that our own greed, our own covetousness, our own rebelliousness flow and make a mess. And so we're guilty not just of Adam's sin, but then we're also guilty of our own. Because Paul says, after many sins, he shifts it. The trespass came after many sins. So there's first Adam's and then there's all the rest that are tacked on by us. And so the gift comes after many sins and as a result, it's much more powerful. The gift is much more effective. And we really have to reckon with that, I think. Because sometimes we get to thinking that Sin is much more powerful than grace. That somehow death is much more powerful than life. And we think that, I think primarily because we've never seen anyone rise from the dead. And we struggle sometimes to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But if he has, we see that grace indeed, life indeed is more powerful. Maybe this can help us. Have you ever wondered how the weed gets through the pavement? Why is there life when there should be death? You've got a cement slab of a driveway. And then there's a weed sticking up through it. There's no sun that could get under the cement slab. <laughs> How did this happen? I'm sure Joseph has an, a, a, you know, an idea and a theory about this. But I'm just saying that the, the power of life, that, that's where uh, Michael Crichton talks about the power of life. And there's something about the power of life that is uncontainable. A seed falls into the ground and dies, that it may produce life. Life is more powerful than death. The life of Christ is more powerful than the death that Adam has brought to us. So, what we see is that Jesus' one act of righteousness does what? It doesn't just bring life, but it brings, Paul says, justification to many. Even though they're guilty of Adam's sin, even though they're guilty of numerous sins on their own, what happens is they can be justified they can be declared righteous in God's sight, acceptable before God because of the gift. Justification is greater than condemnation. Which is why Paul can say in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because And then later in in Romans 8, he says, if it is God who justifies, who can condemn? The power of justification is greater than the power of condemnation. But we tend to live the other way. 
And so when our sins weigh upon us, we get filled with despair and misery as opposed to looking to Christ to deliver us. We feel the weight of sin too much as if it was the heaviest thing, the biggest thing. It feels powerful to be under the grip of guilt. That's because it oppresses. But grace does not oppress. Grace lifts the weight like a strong man. Jesus has more power to restore lives than Adam does to destroy lives. Did I just goof that up? Did I say restore? Okay, yeah, I meant restore, destroy. More power to restore than Adam has to destroy. And so Paul talks about the reign of grace, that it reigns abundantly more than sin through, this, through righteousness. And this morning I'm like still wrestling with that this morning. What in the world is Paul talking about? I want to know. And I believe part of what he's saying here is that we, since we are no longer under the reign of death and sin, we no longer have to obey sin, which is where he goes in 6 and 7. We have no debt, no obligation to the sinful nature and its temptations and longings and desires. We don't have to obey it anymore. Sin can reign in us so that righteousness reigns through us, meaning Growing in our own personal righteousness. Think about it this way. We are no longer helpless at the, at the hands of sin. Okay? We, we have been, we've been brought under the reign of grace. It's almost like changing countries. There are a number of you have, who have moved from one country to another. Right? Isn't it very different here than anywhere else? It's not just the language. You could have come from another English-speaking country, but it's very different. There are new customs to learn. There are new practices to pick up, new phrases to learn. How to dress is even different. What happens is, is that being justified is similar to changing your citizenship. And you learn a new way to live that is in step with the reign of grace as opposed to the reign of death that you were so used to. It's like changing countries. If you're two when it happens, there's an adjustment, but it's not as long. When you're old like I was, it takes a while. Okay? But it's something that gets worked out in our lives and that's part of what Paul's talking about. And that's where he's going to go in the next few chapters of Romans, is the working out of this so that we who now live under grace are now walking in our own personal righteousness. And one of the things that really happens here is this, Paul is just piling up these things like much more and even more and abundantly more. Paul is not dispassionate about this. He's writing about this, and this is not some dry intellectual lecture that Paul is writing. He is worshiping as he writes. 
He is overcome by the enormity of grace even in his own life. And so should we. And so I ask, are you still an Adam? We're all born there. But we don't sort of passively find our way into Jesus one day. If you're still in Adam, then you still suffer under the reign of sin, under the reign of death, under the reign of condemnation. Or have you made the transition? Have you left the old man and entered into the new man, Christ, by faith in Christ and His work, His act, His gift, His death, and obedience in your place? Have you made that transition yet? Have you placed your, your faith and your hope in Him? Are you now, if you do, you are now enjoying grace. You're now enjoying righteousness. You're enjoying justification. And you will grow in your understanding and experience of it. Which I guess brings us back to that last uh, quotation by Dave Harvey last week. That's the Christian life. Growing in our understanding and application of the Gospel. And so there's still so much sin, there's still so much hatred, crime in this world, precisely because when Adam disobeyed, he did it for us too. And so death and condemnation reign over all of Adam's children. But Jesus came, like Adam, to act as a covenant head, the head of a new and different and better covenant. He saves people through His greater gift to produce life and righteousness by grace. And In fact, part of what it is... It's almost like Jesus writes a new ending to your story. Whatever chapter He enters into that story, the rest is different because of Him. The theme is different. And therefore, all the details become different. What a great gift. So why don't we pray? Father, it is not enough for us to understand this great transaction, this great exchange that uh, mirrors the, the previous great exchange. But I ask that You'd help us to communicate the truth. That You'd help us to remember that this is not just for us, but is also for everyone that we meet. Teach us to communicate the greatness of the Gospel to those that we meet that are still struggling under the reign of death. Help us who believe to live under this reign of grace, that we might grow in our personal righteousness, confident that God sees us as perfectly righteous because of Jesus' obedience. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who is our righteousness and sanctification. Amen.